2: fun topic on this project.
0: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
1: The primary means of circulation of the school was a series of ramps and not the stairs. And it was just a three or four-story school, which meant that uh, all of these kids had to be in the same same uh, public space right of the ramp. So that uh, gave my son a lot of uh, visibility and made him feel included.
3: Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. This week, I'm talking with Ganesh Nayak of Meteor Inc. It was an interesting conversation where we discussed the intersection of sustainability and accessibility in the built environment. Ganesh shares his journey from being an architect to starting his own consultancy, focused on sustainability and accessibility. We touch on the challenges of retrofitting historic buildings and the need for architects to go beyond compliance with accessibility codes. He also shares some of his personal story of caring for his son, and emphasizes the importance of designing for disabilities and creating inclusive spaces. And one of my favorite parts of this episode is that we touch on the power of well-designed spaces to promote equity. Head over to our Instagram page, at Tangible Remnants, to see photos that highlight some of the items that Ganesh and I talk about today. And once there, be sure to click on our bio to get access to the Linked Tree site that will direct you to a number of different resources, from funding opportunities to upcoming conferences where I'll be speaking. And there's even a link for you to sign up for our newsletter. One of the reasons I was super excited to do this interview was because Ganesh is one of my favorite people to run into at conferences. He has such an interesting background. So listen to his bio and you'll see what I mean. Ganesh Nayak, AIA, and NOMA, Founded metier inc in atlanta georgia where he consults on sustainable design and accessibility growing up in india he did his undergraduate studies in architecture before coming to the u.s and getting a graduate degree at kansas state university he's worked in architecture in st paul minnesota and wichita kansas before moving to atlanta georgia and he has published taught and presented extensively on architecture sustainability and accessibility he and his wife Satara are fully involved in the daily care of their young adult son who has developmental disabilities, and Ganesh brings his personal experience and voice to bear on issues of equity, design, and advocacy for disability. He is the current chair of the USGBC's Equity Working Group for LEED version 5, and he served as the chair of Georgia State's Advisory Panel for Special Education and on the Kansas Governor's Council for Developmental Disabilities as a parent. He's also a member of the AIA Committee on the Environment's Leadership Group, COT, and he serves as a secretary on the board of AIA Georgia. So he's using his voice and platform to really advocate and raise awareness for issues that sometimes people don't see. Well, I'm super excited for you to hear this episode. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Ganesh Nayak. I am super excited to have Ganesh on the show today. And so welcome. Thank you for taking some time.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Nikita, for having me on the show here. Of
3: course. And so I remember when we ran into each other at a couple of different conferences when we first met. So we met at NOMA and then again at AIA, at some of the Committee on the Environment things. So I remember being like, oh, we definitely have some kindred spirits and some overlapping. And then I remember going to your NOMA presentation where you're talking about a lot of the sustainability and the overlap of just so many things. And so before I start rambling too much, I would love for you to introduce yourself.
1: <laughs> uh, sure. Hi, my name is Ganesh Naik. I'm an architect in the Atlanta area, but I was an architect. And now I consult with architects on sustainability and uh, accessibility. So I started my own consultancy about 10 years ago. And uh, before that, I was uh, working in the corporate field uh, as an architect. I uh, did my undergraduate degree in architecture in India and uh, came to the United States after working. Actually, I didn't know, Nikita, that you know that I I was working for a few months, maybe about uh, six or seven months in, in historic preservation in India before I came here. So,
3: I did not know that. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah.
1: Anyway, then I came here for my grad studies at uh, Kansas State University and uh was always interested in sustainability and but that kind of took a backseat when I got into grad school and uh, subsequent uh, entry into the profession for about maybe a decade but but then after that, I got right back in with, with lead and uh, I was had the good fortune of of working on a on a, on a few lead projects and uh, so that gave me the confidence to establish my own consultancy uh, because of uh, personal. Uh, circumstance that you know my son has disabilities and uh, as he was growing the corporate setup just wouldn't cut it to be on his schedule for taking him to therapies and uh, and all of that you know as he was growing up his needs were getting more and more which required both our my wife's and I my presence and I was traveling quite a bit so Mm -hmm. it's time to kind of uh, uh, change change course
3: I'm glad that you made that decision. And so I also I love that your consultancy combined sustainability and accessibility. When did you see that there was a need to be able to combine both of those together?
1: Well, actually, I started off as consulting on on sustainability, and uh, about three years back, I I said, well, you know, I'm kind of living the life, so so to speak. I mean, as close to disability as i can get because of, uh, taking care of my son day in and day out as his primary care- caregiver and uh, navigating uh, spaces so that gave me a pretty good idea of what uh, what it means to have a good accessible architecture so that's so that's how i got into consulting for accessibility so i basically you know i i do ada consulting but uh, for the past five or six years, I've always been talking a lot about uh, how we need to go much, much beyond the ADA mm-hmm. and make uh, accessibility uh, as integral to the design itself and not as an afterthought.
3: Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things that you've noticed in terms of there being a mismatch between the environment and the needs needed for humans needing to use the space or even some of the challenges that you've seen?
1: Oh, all the time, because many a time I find that uh, the, the spaces which are the dimensions and uh, the spaces which are managed by the ADA are are not enough actually sometimes the, the turning radius is not enough in, in bathrooms and sometimes bathrooms well in my case when uh, since my son has you know has developmental disabilities and uh, needs uh, help with every function uh, every activity you know we are his caregiver right so some of the spaces are just not Large enough for for him and a caregiver. So those those are some of those issues which we come across a lot in in the buildings. And that's uh, and uh, many a time you know when we have to change him. Yeah, it's, it's been a while, but uh, I remember going to to Disney ten years ago, and he of course he loved those those rides and all of that. But we had to change him. We went to the family restroom, and uh, unfortunately there was no changing table, so. We had to make do and had to you know, put them on the floor. So that's there's a lack of dignity which which we encounter in a number of cases.
3: Yeah, I've been seeing and learning more about the need for adult changing tables yes. in a lot of public yeah. spaces and all that. I keep there's
1: advocating like, for that, yes.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes. And I have some colleagues at Quinn Evans as well who've been researching this, particularly with a lot of the museum work that we do with the Smithsonian. But it's things like that that sometimes architects and people who don't need that function don't think about, because it's one of those things where, oh, well, it wasn't necessarily explicitly said in the ADA or in certain codes, so it's kind of missed. So it's like being able to give more voice to the lived experience of people who have these needs, I think is fantastic.
1: Yes, absolutely. The the need to go beyond looking at the ADA is just a compliance thing, a a checklist that we have to, to check off of. That's something which we, we as architects, we need to absolutely, you know, sh- shed that attitude. And we have to kind of imagine ourselves, I think, uh, as as how a disabled person would, uh, would uh, navigate our spaces and, and design for that. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And I know one of the things that particularly working with historic buildings is something where being able to retrofit historic buildings to be able to accommodate more accessibility and be more inclusive is something that also comes up a lot. I know that's something that we're still learning and working through. But what's been your experience in kind of working on any of those kind of projects, or consulting or advising on any of those kind of projects?
1: Yeah, well, I, I haven't really consulted on the historic historic preservation project per se. One of the issues about the historic preservation projects, and of course, existing buildings and adaptive reuse, which of course is one of the, our main tools we have to reverse or mitigate the climate change. You know, you have to. This is one of our Main strategies for decarbonization is to use existing buildings, and uh, it's coming more and more into the foreground, and rightly so. Uh, but I, I do worry sometimes that uh, that uh, accessibility is kind of given the short shrift because the, the the threshold for the ADA is a little lower than in existing buildings than for a new construction. So that's something which we need to to, to keep. To be mindful of i would love for uh architects in the space to 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 not take the the path of least resistance <laughs> and just you know do what whatever right the right ADA don't says. just take the and exemption because it's always oh, it's exactly. a historic
3: building let's just not worry about letting people get into it like let's yeah let's really focus on how do we make our buildings more equitable and accessible to everyone who needs to come into it
1: yeah yeah, yeah. that's the the thing about the code is that we are always we are always looking for exemptions and many a time it is valid because sometimes the code is too too stringent and or it doesn't make sense or logical sense so that's that's it's fine to, to to look for exemptions to to make it more logical but sometimes we take uh, exemptions that kind of uh, uh, might uh, alter the experience of someone else in the building so that's something which we need to be cautious about i think
3: yeah absolutely that's such a good point. And I think particularly as we're moving into this space of trying to decarbonize our buildings, focus more on net zero, building reuse, and really focusing on climate action, it's important that we don't forget about climate justice as well. So not just accessibility in buildings, but then also what are we doing and how are we achieving more of those climate justice roles, particularly with lower income communities bearing more of the burden of pollution and all of that. So how we're thinking about it more global as opposed to just at our individual building scale.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it brings up a very good point about uh, how we are now seeing, we have to see buildings as much, much, in a much, much more holistic sense, which incorporates, previously it used to be like a, a little siloed and insular where we used to treat sustainability as uh, as separate from the, the design itself. And uh, we just kind of, uh, you know, make it, uh, utilize some tools of uh, to make it more energy efficient and all of that. And then... Uh, Make it sustainable in that sense, but it is still kind of exterior to that. So uh, now we have expanded the the definition of, expa- of sustainability to to in- include equity, and I think that's an extremely important thing to do. And we we recognize that uh, it's just it's not only climate action but climate justice too. So and uh, they are pretty much I mean they, they are the same thing, but they are not too. <laughs> <laughs> because I think uh, when we bring climate equity and justice, we we are looking at uh, the historic wrongs which have been done and we're trying to remedy them. And when we look at that aspect, we really cannot, we have to look at it differently than climate action itself.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you're just such a great presenter and you've been great at speaking at different conferences and really helping people understand and kind of reframe some of the, I'll say misconceptions that people might have about sustainability or around uh, climate action and all these things. Maybe what's some of the pushback that you get, if any, that you can think of in terms of people either being surprised, like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, or just being resistant to really embracing some changes?
1: I, I don't really get uh, pushback as such. I mean, uh, there's always that, uh, yes, I hadn't thought of that. There are lots of those type of moments. But uh, I really don't know whether, you know, whether they take it all through, take it back to the work or not. That's, that's important, right? I mean, it's important to do, do the right. work. It's important to, to, to do substantial work, right? to, to substantiate on those aspects. So that's something which, but some of the challenges, and of course, I mean, all of these challenges come down to, to budgets, correct? Right? But my point, which I always try to make, is we, we have to start at a much higher bar and then kind of negotiate down to where it meets the budget, or, uh, what we can do in the building. But if we, if we start at, uh, the, uh, at a much lower bar, then it really, I think it's our attitudes that we have to change, you know, which uh, uh, then it, we are really not doing anything much to, for equity. Yeah, it's so important to, to, to bring that into buildings.
3: Yeah. And I know that you're also really heavily involved with the Committee on the Environment. And I I know that's something that's kind of been changing a little bit in terms of the reframing of it. Because as you mentioned, sustainability used to be seen as this thing that was separate from design and was an add-on and this other thing that had to happen on top of design. But I know there's been some conversations to try and pivot that so that it's no longer – the sustainable projects are in their own category for COAT Awards or COAT Top 10 Awards. And then the design awards are something different. Now there really is an effort to try and bring the framework for design excellence and all of the tools of sustainability more heavily into the awards. I guess, can you talk a little bit about the work you've been doing with Community on the Environment?
1: Yeah, sure. So I was fortunate to to, to be selected to to join the, uh, the Committee on the Environment. And it's, I've finished two years of my three-year term. This year, I co-chaired the, the uh, Climate Action, Climate Justice uh, Subcommittee on the Environment. And uh, so we're, we're doing some, uh, we're going to do some exciting work. We are, so we're trying to, we are, we are going to get an outside consultant to work on uh, a resource which pulls through, uh, which pulls out good examples of uh, of climate action and climate justice and community engagement and all that. So that, uh, that, that resource would be extremely useful for architects to enable climate justice through their work so that's something which we are going to to hopefully uh, roll out in the next uh, about six or seven months of that yeah so that's uh, that's going to be really interesting and uh, it, it's going to to add to that uh, that really useful uh, slate of uh, of equity guides which uh, the aia has and i'm mm-hmm. excited about that so. yeah
2: Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA Continuing Education Services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast, where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out.
3: One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp! What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously, they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else.
2: While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, yep. just taking it day by day. Yes. But not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did.
3: These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction,
2: and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform.
3: Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. I remember at the AA conference, so the coat forum was one of the things that was one of my favorite sessions to go to and kind of just be in the room at one of the tables talking with other professionals who were... You know, curious about certain different things, the different prompts that were included on the screen. So that was a really great session that I was really glad. To like, oh yes, Ganesh is here and they're leading it. Yeah, Co- <laughs> it was it was such a great session. So I'm glad you Yeah,
1: it that really together. was. Yeah. And we always love that uh, the Code the open sessions because there's so much of enthusiasm and so many people come to it and uh, there's so much energy in the room and uh, there's a lot of good takeaways from that. So I love that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. And so then I guess in terms of, I guess we'll put it back to some of the um, accessibility conversation. I know that we, so we talked a little bit about physical disabilities. Did you also want to talk any about invisible disabilities as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about physical, I mean, when you talk about the accessibility, of course, we have to make sure that it's it's not just visible uh, Disabilities, but also invisible disabilities, because we we tend to look at visible disabilities much much more because because of the the visual state of of the altered body in space, right? But many a time we, we lots of people have vis- disabilities which are invisible, such as hearing loss and even visually impaired and uh, and our learning disabilities too, and of course uh, the neurodivergent uh, spectrum. Uh, so we have to we have to go to design for all of that, or consider that in 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 design. And the, the and there's a lot of work which is kind of happening in the just in the past three or four years of how to better design spaces which uh, which cater to uh, populations uh, to neurodivergent populations. I, I think we absolutely have to 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 consider all of that in 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 uh, design. Yeah. Uh, there's something which we we really don't do much, but uh, there's something which I've been kind of keep pushing for in in my work to 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 look at all the the entire spectrum of of ability or disability. What do we call it?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's super helpful, and yeah. it's like it's so important because a lot of times it is the things that we can see or the things that are top of mind are often the ones that we'll focus on as opposed to sometimes doing more of our due diligence to really see, okay, well, who's missing or what hasn't been considered or how could someone else in a different situation interact with the space? So I'm glad that you're still advocating for all that and helping to raise awareness for it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, since our son was born and we started to kind of get into, to know of, uh, of his disabilities as, as time went by, as the initial years went by. We started to get more and more immersed in the disability field. So, for about seven years, I was also on the uh, the state advisory panel for special education in the state of in Georgia, which uh, advised the director of special needs on the special ed on the unmet needs of children with disabilities. And uh, for a for one year, I was chair, and uh, it really opened my eyes so much uh, on the the inequities in our schools. You know, when we were looking at the uh, students with disabilities first of all there's so much of uh, the, this this whole thing of pro- disproportionality where first of all you know students are disciplined more those students who have disabilities and then the and then on the there's a double whammy where if the students of color who have disabilities are disciplined much 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 more so that's the disproportionate we are talking about and even when you're looking at uh, the spaces in our schools itself, right? So, uh, I'll give you a, a quick example about so, in my son's uh, one of my sons, i uh, one of his first uh, primary schools, uh, elementary schools. Now, he's been through about I think five different elementary schools, and that's another thing, you know, they keep bouncing kids with disabilities around, um, and that itself is a thing of, of equity. But in one of his schools, I, I, I think he he went there at the age six, and uh, at least for the next 10 years, and he was there just for one year. And at least for 10 years, uh, we had you know, kids in the community, whenever we, we were out in the community, come up to, to him and say, the, say hello. And we never really knew what was happening, but they were all from the same school. And then we realized that it was uh, because of the, the architecture of the school, and the, the physical space of the school. Of the way, we realized that, uh, that the primary means of circulation of the school was a series of ramps and not the stairs, and it was just a three or four story school, which meant that uh, all of these kids had to be in the same same uh, public space, right, of the ramp. So that uh, gave my son a lot of uh, visibility and made him feel included, and uh, that, and I, I keep talking about this because it is such a personal. I mean, it's a personal example, right? And it, the, the power of well-designed spaces really hit home. And this, this school was, you know, otherwise it was not really like so-called high design or whatever, but it made a difference in my son's life. So that's, uh, that, that's something which we, you know, we, we keep talking about, my wife and I. And uh, of course, his teachers are great. That's another big factor. But compared to that, the very next school he went to, it was, you know, the special ed classrooms are completely segregated from the rest of the school. I mean, the rest of the classrooms, they were in a corner and they had a separate entrance too. So, I, I oh, mean, wow. you know, it's like there's an entrance, of course, we could go through the main entrance, but it's more more convenient, right, <laughs> to right, right. go through that. So that, so it becomes like a, you, you're, you're unwittingly creating habits of segregation. So that's the kind of uh, thing which which I talk about in schools, which uh, which can really uh, make such a big difference. Uh, I, I'm talking about the programming of spaces and the creation of spaces, which can make a huge difference in in creating equity for kids with disabilities.
3: Yeah, that's such a powerful example, and I'm imagining kind of the the school with the ramps, where it's really equitable access space for everyone to be able to use the same path and not have to go through the back door or be separated from other people that's really interesting and powerful
1: another thing which i keep talking about is how nakita these kids who have been exposed to to kids with disabilities right their mm-hmm. peers who who are not like them right they they are much much more grounded i mean they develop more empathy for mm-hmm. people who are not like them and uh, um, and who knows? In two or, in twenty or thirty years, they may be in positions of policy making, which uh, where they'll be making policies which affect my son's life. Yeah, so we have absolutely. to look at it that uh, you know it's it's a two way street there. Yeah.
3: And
1: so we all benefit from from being exposed to people with disabilities. Right. So personal
3: story. So I, the schools that I went to, had um, populations of kids with disabilities, and so you know, in elementary school, I was a vision patrol. So I would walk some of the blind students to and from the bus. And then in high school, we had, so I played basketball, and we had some of our basketball managers were actually girls who were in wheelchairs and had muscular dystrophy and all that sort of thing. But it was, I didn't realize that not everyone kind of had access and friends who had disability, physical disabilities. And so you saying that, you know, people who have access, like, oh, right, that was something that was somewhat unique. And I remember our our basketball managers, they, some of them were nonverbal, but our coach would give them the bell to shake so that we would have to then go run. <laughs> so we'd have to go like run the ladders when we were training. And so there are some days where we we're like, hold on, don't give her the bell yet. We're not ready. <laughs> like, we're not <laughs> ready. <laughs> don't make us run just yet. Thank you. But then, you know, they were excited to be involved in their at-all our games. So yeah, that's actually a really good point. I hadn't thought about the fact that access and really just seeing people who have different disabilities to also demystify some of the fear that comes along with interacting with people who have different disabilities. And that's interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that. it, it is. I mean, and uh, uh, a couple of other things, you know, when you're, when you're uh, immersed in the field of or world of disabilities, you start to kind of, you start to bat for uh, people with, uh, with disabilities, you know, you right. see them from uh, positions of weakness. And, and I'll give you another quick example of how You know, whenever I see uh, in our shopping, you know, strip malls and all of that, you have these, uh, sometimes, many a time, you have these, the accessible parking spaces, which are clogged up by parking, uh, by shopping carts. Yeah. And which makes it unusable. And I get so mad about that. Yes. Yes. Uh, and sometimes right when I you. see people doing that, I go up to them and say, no, please take it away. <laughs> I have a kid who has to say right.
3: I cannot use the space. <laughs> right. i when people try to either park in the access aisle or try to do something where they're like, they're blocking the access aisle, thinking that the access aisle is just extra space when like, it's no, it's it makes the space usable with like, it's a whole. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another interesting point about uh, you know, since I'm in, in the field of sustainability and uh, accessibility, you know sustainability, of course, we are we are trying to make our spaces as uh, you know less resource intensive and small as possible, etc. Uh size matters, of course. And you know, we're talking about decarbonization and all that. But then people with disabilities, you know, we definitely require a lot more space than. <laughs> so there's a there's an right. inherent uh, contradiction there but uh, these are things which we we need to kind of uh, talk about more yeah uh yeah because uh, another thing is like uh, is an interesting thing in, in my house our garage is full of you know, we we have to when we have a, a person with uh, with a development dis- disability as my son who uh, needs a hundred percent care with uh, or help with uh, every daily daily activity, of course. He crawls, but, but otherwise he he's nonverbal and uh, um, he uses a wheelchair, etc. And needs to be fed and uh, and changed. We have we have to plan for redundancy, right? And that's resilience. I mean, in cases wheelchair breaks down, we have another wheelchair in the garage, we <laughs> we don't want to give it up. So our garage is full of you know like uh, right. full of his wheels. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something which we we uh, so redundancy is part of the resiliency thing. Which that's something which <laughs> which which I realized. Yeah,
3: <laughs> amazing. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap
1: up? A couple of things. So so when we are talking about design for disability, you know, we we always have to look at um, at designing for. The fringes, for the edges, for the margins, and uh, the the edge conditions. And when we do that, then everyone benefits. But we sometimes we end up de- designing for the average person, right? Or the average, uh, for the, the 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 great mean, which which where most people kind of exist, right? And uh, that really doesn't work for anyone, actually. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I think that's an important point, which we, which we sometimes keep forget. So, for instance, you know, you have the cliche of the curb cut, right? Which, uh, of course, benefits the, the the wheelchair user as well as the young parent with the stroller. So that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So it's, it's an edge condition where, where everyone benefits. That's something which we need to to, to think about, I think, yeah. Another quick thing which which I've been thinking about lately, and it's it's surprising how some things from way back come back, you know, into the, into your thoughts. But when my son was in the was just born, and I think in the second or third day in the NICU, so we got a report from the doctor and it said something about failure to thrive, right? <laughs> and that is, you know, that he would not grow as much and blah blah blah. So, but that was such a clinical and cold medical term, like failure to thrive. And I'm thinking, what's the opposite of that? So we really, I think we need to make our spaces where everyone can thrive and not just grow, but but flourish. So that's something which, and uh, people of all abilities, I think. And that, that I think, is important for architects to consider, where, uh, how can we make our spaces where everyone can thrive? That's... Because it's the very, very opposite of uh, what what I encountered. Thank you so much for listening. Links
3: to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song "Fireflies" from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which, by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L, media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history
2: saw the first fireflies of summer and right then i thought of you oh i could see us catching them and setting them free honey that's what you do
3: that's what you do to me